Here we go. We recorded this podcast. It's your turn. What's the name of the podcast? Do you remember? This is called uh, Failure the Podcast. Excellent. Um, and I think it's failurethepodcast.com. I don't know. Failure the, the dash the podcast. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have both. We do have both. We introduce yourself. Both. Introduce us. Oh, my name is uh, Mick Williams, and I'm the president and founder of Boston Harbor Angels, a local angel group that invests internationally. <laughs> and who's the gentleman to your right? Oh, that's Mark. You don't know who Mark is? No, I've never seen him before. <laughs> Except last last week and the week before. In the, the last 15 years. Yeah, it's been like Mark, 15 no. years. Yeah, yeah. So I'm Mark Thurman. I, uh, I uh, oh, what am I? I? I'm the chair of the MIT Connected Things Group. I... Am a strategy advisor. Is that like the Internet of Things, connected things. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just hate the term Internet of Things. Because yeah. I don't want my things on the goddamn Internet. Which is <laughs> my normal the, uh, my normal punchline. And we talked about privacy, and there is none. So all your things are on the Internet. Yeah. Well, actually, all your things shouldn't. Your consumer things might be, but this is a different podcast. Oh, all right. These, but uh, but but industrial things are really not. <laughs> I, I am. Sorry. Yeah. Who are you? I am I the minority group of this podcast because. Because everything I request is denied. <laughs> everything I suggest is denied. Well, so I'm you? going to unionize. And, and uh, so I'm Ziad, and I'm You're one of the... You're banging your coffee cup. Yes. <laughs> Can you hear it? Ziad <laughs> who? Okay, I, I uh, submit my resignation now. <laughs> I also work with Boston Harbor Angels, and I'm one of the hosts also of this What's your role at BHA? Post. I am mix assistant. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Not true. He's my boss. <laughs> One of the two. So I'm Dave Pausner, a uh, patent lawyer and partner here at Nutter McLennan and Fish in Boston. So we had in today. We had Randall Wright in um, of the MIT. Fascinating. Yeah, he was great. Well, it was the industrial liaison office slash program. Office of corporate relations or corporate development. What is it? Because the conversation went all over the place. What is it that? If you had to summarize this, we learned from Randall. What it would be hard to touch on all the issues we touched to, touched on. I think one of the most important things I thought about is his ideas on innovation and leadership, which you can hear on the podcast. And um, what is innovation? What is leadership? And yeah. what is creativity? And how important is creativity? Those were the things that I, I found very, very interesting. Ziad? Yeah, I think it's the same it's the whole connection between leadership, innovation, creativity, and um, and MIT. Three letters that make people vibrate in this town. Huh. Yeah, true, true. Mark? Well, I, th- I think, you know, part of it, the linkage to not only what he does for a living and our podcast was, you know, he talks about lots of companies want to innovate, and a lot of them go to uh, uh, the uh, Randall's office to uh, discuss discuss. Uh, a means of partnership, but they they want to innovate, but they don't know how. And you know, the linkage to me was, you know, they learn from failure, and sometimes they need a little assistance. And that's again where Randall and and his team help, uh, you know, create a partnership between a, a, a company and and the university. So I what I think I took away from it was <laughs> the framework that I can't tell that he. I don't know that he uses this in his day-to-day work, but there's a mo- an analytical framework that he has in mind um, with layers of creativity, innovation on the business side, innovation on the product side, and so forth, that 
there's an analytical framework that one could use to dissect uh, a business or a post-mortem, why do they fail, or that you could use to analyze and understand a business while it's going. Um, and he bridges academia and the business world, and that's a very hard thing right. to do, is to, in academia, you're allowed to test and research and do things just for the sake of innovation, right. while in the <coughs> commercial world, you need to prove a commercial uh, viability and you have to make money and you have to survive. So this is, those are two, I don't want to say they're not in conflict, but they're not necessarily in collusion, to use a very... Necessarily? Uh, I don't know. Necessarily. <laughs> necessarily. It's his pan-European accent. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so... Mick had some questions. I don't know. First, you, I mean, there were some interesting questions on well, where Randall. You spoil the whole. you got to stay and no, listen to won't. the broadcast. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's right. True. Why don't we let him do that? I'm kind of curious. Uh, we do a lot of work with MIT from Boston Harbor Angels. As I'm, mm-hmm. the, I'm the president and founder of Boston Harbor Angels. And what yes. we've, uh, we know a lot of things about Boston Harbor Angels as we have uh, numerous venture mentors in our group. And mm-hmm. we've had, you know, various people that have come and gone who have presented companies to us. But how, how did you find the job and did you make it up or was it already there and, and how did you design it? Uh, meaning my role at MIT. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Uh, I, I've been at MIT for over 30 years and the, program that I'm a part of. So MIT has programs that are really not departments. They don't do research and teaching. So for you to have a uh, like a, a research center, you have to do research and teaching. This organization at MIT, which was originally called the Industrial Liaison Program, it's still called that, but uh, it's part of the Office of Corporate Relations, was founded in 1947, and its goal is really to be an interface between corporations that want to innovate by being part of the MIT community and MIT. A long time ago, this really was a, because industry was different, a long time ago, there were like SIC codes, and there were businesses that were in defined industries. So you made televisions, or you made appliances, or you were in the steel business. And so all of those firms had research groups. And the idea behind the program was that the researchers in the companies would talk to the faculty members and stay abreast of developments, because MIT was more probably segmented back then. There wasn't as much... Um, interdisciplinary work, but there was still was a lot, but it, it wasn't uh, quite as it is today because there are new fields emerging that end up being platforms across a lot of areas. So way back when, if you would come to MIT, you would have worked with a liaison officer like myself, but you would have been talking to faculty members about the research projects, and if you went to a conference, it was like teaching graduate students. They were they were writing equations, and people were writing equations down. Over time, that changed, because what happened is that, and I think you would see that in the development of a lot of businesses that started to be generated out of MIT, a lot of companies came out, that people were creating technologies that were having a lot of impact on society. MIT always did that, but I think that pace increased and so the people we began to deal with were more management people more vice presidents and and, and up who 
were interested in MIT a little bit differently, which was to, in a sense, for better decision making. So the role that that I took on because, you know, and I sort of shaped it by writing about about what I did, um, and I think I'm reasonable at writing, so I was able to publish enough things. Uh, what I recognized was that there was there was an interface issue with companies. And the interface issue is that lots of companies talk about wanting to innovate, but they have trouble saying what an innovation is. And they have trouble organizing them, themselves to extract what they could from MIT faculty members about what they know. So that was sort of the impetus for writing and speaking is to get that message out to companies. Um, I know that uh, the sort of the topic here is about failure, and one of the things that I have thought about with that is why companies have difficulties. I think the reason that they do is because uh, why they can't learn from failure, let's put it that way. It's because I think in businesses, business has a, like a set of sort of doctrines that are words that have been espoused by people like Bruce Henderson of the Boston Consulting Group. So he wrote a large number of papers about business, and it's sort of a zero-sum game adversarial kind of a uh, take he has. Uh, but when people want to innovate, the behaviors that go with that don't go and work well in an innovation community. So, I mean, I can give you many examples of things that companies do that don't work in their advantage in dealing with a community of innovation. Can we interrupt you? Uh, Can we interrupt sure. you for a second? I, so I'm Nick, a little confused. Yeah. I still okay. hear the we all We yeah. all think that we know what innovation is. Yes. But, but um, you know, it's like Justice Stewart said, uh, I know when I see it about pornography, but what is? how would you define this innovation? Is, this is a different podcast than the pornography one that you, that <laughs> that you think you're doing. Week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go ahead. It's, it, it, it's okay. We can define innovation always as being an argument, and the reason it's always an argument is because there's inference. Whenever there is discourse containing inference, there's people are making arguments. So there are arguments in art, literature, law, technology, and so uh, an example that I have in a paper that was published by Sloan Management Review. And, and when I say argument, it has to follow the form. If P, then Q, and the then is an inference. It's saying if I invent a certain invention and create a certain thing that solves certain problems, I'm inferring that I'm going to empower people somehow. And that's what Henry Ford said in his book, My Life and Work by Henry Ford. He wrote it in 1922. And what he says is he will build a car for the great multitude. It'll be built of the best materials by the best men to be hired after the simplest designs that modern engineering can devise. But it'll be so low in price that no man uh, earning a decent salary will be unable to own one and enjoy hours of pleasure in God's great open spaces. He says, he goes on to say, when I'm through, 
everyone will have one and everyone will be able to afford one. The horse will disappear from our highways and we will give a large number of men employment at good wages. That's an argument for the Model T. You can split it in half and say, if I make a car with all these characteristics, then this is going to be the outcome. I will transform society. Hold on. If you're at a stopping point, if you're at a stopping point, if not, come back. Sure. You, sure. years ago, were a guest on a podcast that a few of us did um, yes. in connection with an MIT Enterprise Forum um, meeting you were hosting, or we were hosting, mm-hmm. and you were the guest at. And you referred to the starting of a business as a conversation. And I've never lost that. I thought that was great. So how does the conversation you referred to then with respect to starting a business relate to the argument you're referring to now or um, using, what is it, metaphorically, Mick? Uh, innovation. Yeah, for innovation. Yeah, well, I have, I'd have to go back to the podcast a number of years ago to remember exactly what I said. But I think that what I would say is, and maybe my ideas have changed a little bit over time, what happens on a campus, and, and when I say an innovation is an argument, I, then I'm not saying that metaphorically. It is an identity. It can always, and you, when you talk to, say, a faculty member about their work, you want to write down what is the argument behind their work. Absolutely. There are arguments in robotics, for example. Uh, Sang Bae Kim here at MIT has made very interesting uh, points of view on robots, what kind of robots we should have, and what does that mean about what problems we should solve. So I would say in starting a business and it being a conversation, I think you have to be part of a discourse of innovation. I th- and, and that's what happens on the campus. That's where there are seminars. That is why there are thesis defenses. So is that, discourse between, is that discourse between the founders, let's say, and their cl- clients? The discourse is no, among no, the company? No. Who are the different parties within the, the argument? That's a really good point. Here's what uh, I was just having this a similar conversation to, uh, with some executives from a, a really nice company uh, uh, just yesterday. And what one of them said, he's very reflective, he said it's interesting how innovators seem to go to certain places. And he cited Florence in the Renaissance. Vienna was a center for music when Mozart wrote and Beethoven. And today there's Silicon Valley and there's Boston. But what happens is that there are very obsessed people who get together and they formulate an idea and it spreads virally. That's been studied by Peter Glor here at MIT, who calls these collaborative innovation networks. So they're not necessarily business people. They're more like the people of what Steve Jobs would talk about in the Homebrew Computer Club, of people who are very obsessed with, uh, 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 let's say, what they feel that they're in a revolution. So can, can like you... Revolution. Can you... I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. Can you just um, clarify the difference between innovation and creativity? And are those two different, or do you need both to to have a great or result? Or is one the outcome of the other? Okay, here's what I would say to answer that. Innovations are always that same structure. It's always if then, and you want to be able to say this is this is what it is. the The outcome is a movement. Okay, so there's a computer movement. If you talk to people here about uh, computing, you talk to a Richard Stallman, who is believes in open source code, 
that open source thing is, an, is a movement. Bitcoin is like a movement, and there are beliefs behind it, and there are people inventing, creating different P's to support that Q. Okay, so that's what an innovation is. Creativity is something different. That's something inborn in people. And I think some people are creative and some people are not. So uh, that's to say that um, there, there's a, uh, another uh, quote that I put in a paper that was for Technology Review. And it was by John Stuart Mill, who wrote the essay on liberty. And he, what he said was that the number of people who are creative in society is usually very small. It's, and they are people who motivate society. So creativity is like saying, um, as an example, I think the composer Schumann was asked, how do you write music? And he said, well, I go into a dark room, and it has to be absolutely quiet, and I sit down at the piano, and I have absolutely not, no idea what happens next. And he just starts writing it. Or Mozart is supposed to have written music by just looking at the page, and he saw the notes. So, so uh, they're so they're in the creativity camp. They're not innovators. And then a quick follow-up question on this before well, I before we cut him off. Yeah. No, yeah, and then, and then, if you can add the role of leadership in that mix, so innovation, leadership, and creativity, because you need leadership to do a startup to raise money, all that good stuff we're involved in, and so if, exactly, yeah, uh, yeah. But what I'm saying is, I you know, let's take um, some examples of how that happens. I think the roles are a little different in this sense. If I were to look at a thing like the Internet and Tim Berners-Lee. The story about him is that he wrote a paper about the Internet, like the first one, and submitted it at a conference. There was a computer science conference, and they rejected it. So what he did is he made lots of copies. He got a lunchroom table out in front of the conference, and he just started handing out papers. And what grew out of that was a small group of very committed people behind that idea. They weren't necessarily trying to start a business. But... That they they were motivated by the argument he was making, and then what people have to do is take the argument and commercialize it, and there you need leadership to commercialize it and, and skill to do that or knowledge to do that. So where does okay. failure play into the argument slash conversation slash discourse? Mm -hmm. Is it a natural part of it, um, or is it a random occurrence? How does it fit in? Here's, here's what I would say on the failure part, that, in my opinion, that I see with companies. The, the, the behaviors that go with innovation are not the behaviors that would go with competing as a business. So as a business, we have a competitor. We, in some businesses, it's a zero-sum game. You know, uh, you have a, a customer or I have a customer, that means you didn't get that customer. There, there's a, a competition that's going on among businesses. But if that behavior gets translated into a community that's saying, how good are your ideas? You have to contribute to be part of our conversation. That's when the, the, there's a problem. And what happens with companies, and I think this has happened with open innovation efforts, is that companies, instead of becoming people who want to learn something are people who want to buy something and shopping is very passive but learning is very hard and the kind of learning we're talking about is learning through experiments 
of trying things. And then if we, you know, we can capture something, then we can go about commercializing it. But I'm just thinking like things like Liquiglide. So you're probably familiar with Liquiglide. No, remind us what it is. Yeah, the Liquiglide is a, it's really like a texturing of a surface, like in a ketchup bottle. That means that the ketchup doesn't stick, it just pours right out. Right, this is the MIT innovation of about five or ten years ago that's now yeah. in the mayonnaise, uh, Hellman's mayonnaise. Correct? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay, so Liquid Guide's a trademark for this new chemical or surface coating. So keep going. Yeah, exactly. Well, something like that actually comes out of a research lab that's trying to solve really serious problems about uh, de-icing airplane wings or efficiencies in uh, power plants, things like this. And then someone within his research group, graduate students, said, I wonder if you could do it with a ketchup bottle. And then they went and commercialized it. But all of what's in that ketchup bottle is the outcome of a discourse that's been going on for a long time that then found, they found another application. Okay, so where did is failure, where did, just because I'm having trouble uh, following, sure. being more concrete here, uh, where yeah. did failure play into that discourse? Oh, okay. It, that failure does not play in. But where failure does play in, in my opinion, is if you take companies that look at digital technologies today and are struggling to become digital, as an example. And the, the trouble is they have business models that they adhere to, and they're trying to support it by acquiring things, as opposed to saying, "Do I am I part of the movement, and how am I going to be part of that growth? So that's the shopping okay, versus I, I, creative I, I, thing. Yeah, yeah. See, it, it's the, 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 the competitor that you don't want is somebody who's so motivated that they can learn business. That's what Steve Jobs said. Okay, Steve Jobs, you know, uh, Apple, had a certain type of, of viewpoint on empowering people with their technology. And then they were not really good at business for a long time until they realized that, and then they opened Apple stores. Okay, and he said of the people who had worked at Apple, he said in another era, these people would have been poets and writers and he he was able to, get, to have a creative community as part of his company. The the companies that that more struggle are ones that have a a, a more of a uh, like a business strategy that where technology is one of the elements. And I would rather not use the word technology as much as I would use the word means when I say that. Because and let me explain what I mean. When you talk about a business strategy, you got to have three things. You got to have an objective, you have to have a strategy concept, and you have to have means. You use the means according to the strategy concept to achieve the objective. And what happens is people can have a strategy concept and then they look to acquire means to support it. And the problem is that they don't have a deep understanding of the means. They may not have an effective strategy. So let me interrupt. Let me, let, let me, let me, okay, so I just want to, get, I want to get back to this failure thing. So it seems yeah, like there's yeah. two points that failure could occur. There is, there, there are a group of creative people out there, a subset yes. of which become innovators, and a subset of that become uh, innovators of things society actually wants. There's also a group of creative people who innovate not in the technical product sense, but innovate in the business sense. So a company like Take Apple was full of initially or started by two creative people, Jobs and uh, Wozniak, 
who were yeah. at least good on the technical side. So there was success there, not failure initially, but success, at least with the first one they made in their garage. Later, if we were to jump ahead, both Jobs and other people were creative and good at business, so those two married when they opened the stores, whoever those two concepts married. But I'm trying to see where failure would have played in. Not on the, We all understand business failure on the business side. Where does failure play in on the creative slash innovative side? Is, is failure what defines the difference between products we want and products we don't want, or what? Okay. Okay, I'm going to answer your question, that part, after I say a different part. The thing that happened to Apple is they had Scully come in from Pepsi-Cola. Yep. Okay, and when that happened, the innovation dropped off in the company, and he was running it according to, you could say, a business strategy to make money. And Jobs had said the company was very profitable, but it was going to go out of business doing what he was doing. That's an example of a guy, Scully, who doesn't get the other creative half. A a, a similar thing actually happened to 3M. 3M uh, had a uh, new CEO who came in from Allied Signal. I don't remember what his name was. And he thought there was no innovation left in any of the platforms that 3M had. And so innovation dropped off, and the company maybe made money, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't going to advance. Uh, it's a different thing to say. Sheldon Buckler, who was the vice chairman of Polaroid Corporation, I knew him very well, had said to me once that companies go out of business because they fail to regenerate. And regenerate means they fail to innovate. Uh, guys like Scully are not in the innovation world. The guy from Allied Signal is not, he doesn't uh, work with that type of a world. And that's where the failure occurs. Uh, Sheldon told me a very interesting story about how he had worked for, I think it was AMF Corporation, and he said they had this really great R&D stuff going on, and the, and the chairman supported that. But then he said there was a, a, a vice president of finance, and he said you could tell when he walked in the R&D center that he had this visceral reaction that he just didn't like the people who were there. They were they were not regimented enough. Okay, hold on. Artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wait a minute. To cut you off there, what I hear yeah. is that you're describing failure now, not in. And, and you said you didn't you didn't promise to do that, but you you're describing yeah. failure now in the failure of the business side to have the insight yes. to fund and nurture the creative side. I'm yes. sorry, the yes. arti- the, in the, the um, technically creative side. So that's yes. where failure can occur in business among the many places. How about, yes. I'm going to pull you over, how about on the creative side, on the, the product side, where does failure play in on the innovative process? Here's what happens um, in my experience on the innovative process side. What happens in companies is that the causes, in my opinion, of failure is that what you have today are you need breadth today to be creative because there's so many intersecting technologies. In many companies, the people, you could say, don't have the bandwidth, and they don't talk to enough people on the outside. So they And when I say talk to people on the outside, I don't mean having kind of, sort of, an understanding of what's going on on the outside, but having a deep appreciation for how megatrends are being started. Because the, the megatrends start as arguments. 
and people commercialize those things. They figure out how to commercialize them. So where the failure occurs on that side is people don't come up with a really good argument. That's where they fail. For, for their innovation. Yeah. Let's take an example. And, and you use a touch screen. Yes. There is a whole group of people who were obsessed at MIT about touch screens and what they would mean to people in changing their lives. And so there is a whole history of this. And this is what something that, that Apple picked up on. Okay. But because there were early experiments, Joe Paradiso was doing experiments with this. Hiroshi Ishii was doing experiments with moving and handling data. Some of the first experiments were done by Neil Gershenfeld for a uh, uh, Museum of Modern Art in New York. There was a uh, uh, like a show, and he he illustrated this. And and what people were interested in when they did that was not how to make a touch screen, but why were people motivated to touch data? Okay. If you go to Research in Motion, they were entering data. They had buttons. And there's a big difference between entering data and handling data. And if you don't see the difference, you make the wrong thing. You make so the, the input, we have to output, and, and uh, how to touch. But I, I need to ask you a question that's been burning on my mind. Yes, he's actually been dancing you, on the table. We have to turn his mic you've off. You've received a medal from the Austrian government, I saw. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I'm, I'm dying to know why and how does one get a medal. Yeah. Yeah. Right, do you want one? We, we can make a medal I, I, for you. I, I, yeah, yeah, I got one back there. Give me about 15 <laughs> minutes, I'll oh, get no, you a medal. all seriousness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you want the serious answer to this? Yes. 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 Well, both. No, we want both. Here's the serious answer. <laughs> okay. Those decorations are based upon the decoration system that Napoleon started, which is to say they, it is a civilian uh, decoration. So in his hierarchy, there are, there are chevaliers, and then there are higher awards. Aristocrats were not given decorations. They were given swords. But if you were a, you would, we would enter the Legion of Merit. And so this is of the, the, that same category. This is a Ritter Cruiser, a Knight's Cross, and it's the same as getting a Chevalier in France. In France? That, because they, would it, you it, rather it, have a sword? Would you? No, not necessarily. I'm sorry, so I'm through the airport. Yeah, so what did you, you do? You know what the hitch is? Yeah, yeah. The decoration you have to wear with white tie and tails. So that's oh. not so many opportunities to wear it. Yeah, yeah, but, but what's the serious thing? What is the, yeah, well, that's the historical basis, but why did you get it? What did you do? What I did is I've worked with the Austrians for 20 years in bringing faculty members to MIT to enable the discourse between MIT and companies and researchers in Austria. And so that's grown into a very large uh, program with them. Uh, part of it involves a major conference that's done every other year in Vienna that covers a whole range of very unusual topics. One year, we did a topic that was based on the movie Her. If you remember, that had uh, Joaquin Phoenix, where he falls in love with his operating system. Uh, and Okay, right. and but see, that's Unnetflix. a crazy movie, except that people are talking about people forming these relationships with things like... Uh, uh, what are called digital familiars. So there's a whole range of technologies that were sort of around that sort of an idea of how life would be different with uh, these emerging things that people are really building. Uh, but that's how that happened. But it, it's over a long period of time. You so, have to be working with them for like 20 years. So, Zia, you better start now. What, what, what's the not serious answer? <laughs> 
What's the what answer? <laughs> you said we. It sounds like we had a choice between a serious answer and a not serious answer. What's the not serious oh, well, answer? The, well, there isn't a not serious answer. It's just that it. It's. Uh, I have to talk a lot to explain, and I didn't know how much time you have for me to explain <laughs> decoration. Look, we always have. Time. Can we? This can is we record recorded on on digital media? We've got endless time. Can we? Okay. Can we test for creativity? Can we do what for creativity? Test. I mean, is there a way oh, to, to take a test and I, say, gee, I'm creative, no, I'm not? That's very hard. I think that's very hard. What I think happens is, you know, I, I hate to keep quoting Steve Jobs, but it's the same story. What happens is that the group is self-selecting. He, what he was saying was that he said the guys who were in this homebrew computer club, he said, were people who were like ham radio operators, guys like, like hobbyists, and where it's an avocation. So, you know, you're asking a very important question. I was looking at an article, the title of an article that somebody had written in an innovation magazine about how to, like, train your employees to be innovative, and you can't. I, I think of a company that I know. Um, there was a company I knew, and it had, a, you know, this, this management team, and they had this one guy who was an outlier, and he was just sort of, you know, an oddball. And a guy who knew that company very well, who supplied them, said, oh, he's invented every product they have. He's the, he's the brains behind every product innovation, is that one guy. And he would talk to all kinds of people outside of his company. So can you, can you train a bunch of people to, to be creative? I don't think you can. I think you can get them to assemble somewhere. You can get them to go to like a Woodstock or something that is appealing to them. But I don't think you can make somebody into something that they're not. Well, what about, what about uh, well, there's, there's a whole educational movement, I think, um, that's based on a modern educational movement that's based on bringing kids together um, in, in groups so that they can stir creativity. And I think that's been going on since the 80s or 70s. What would you have to say about that? Okay. I think you have to ask what is the purpose of that. Okay, the purpose may be to help people feel confident that they can create and give them a format to do that. All right, that's like talking about contests. Why would you want to run a contest? You could run a contest because it's a way to have people express themselves, but not necessarily to get the next big thing. Okay. So the question is, as an educational thing, it's exploring a different educational form to draw out student creativity. But it doesn't mean that, it doesn't mean that, uh, you look at the music revolution. You know, there's John, Paul, George, and Ringo. Now, how many more guys are there like that? It turns out it's, it's actually not such a large group. Somebody might write a hit, but can they write continuous hits and, and create a movement that's different? Well, that that goes so, back to uh, Randall, what you were saying earlier, which is create creativity's inborn. So I, I think, I think it, would, it kind of is. Yeah, and, and you could have somebody that uh, you can train to play piano, uh, so it's like typing, or, or you have somebody that's really got the inborn talent to play properly. So uh, this is the nature nurture thing. I got to say, I'm not sure I buy into that. I, I understand the point. I well, understand just because what you're I, uh, just because I could teach you how to play bassoon doesn't mean you're going to be a talented bassoon player. It just means that you know how to operate 
the instrument. And I think, no, you know, if I take Randall's argument, I'll just, I'll, yeah, 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 I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll wrap it up. But no, if, no. if I take Randall's argument, some people have it, some people don't. Well, that may be true, but Randall's argument was, uh, was highlighted by the Beatles. And I think the issue with the Beatles was there might have been a number of equally creative groups at the time. It turned out they, I don't know whether they met up with Martin or not, but he's part of the group. Um, yep. But it turned out a record label liked that. Somebody liked that. But there was it a began, self-selection. But it there began was a selection snow- process. But yes, but once it, once it began snowballing, you had to sound like the Beatles or be wildly different to be accepted. So the Beatles now defined creativity. Um, and so I don't think that's an entirely fair analogy. I would say a little differently. I think what the Beatles defined was a movement, not necessarily creativity. Now, if I look, you know, as a, just as a sort of a counterpoint, Ron Howard, when he made his movie Eight Days a Week, there was someone who was interviewed who was like a musicologist. He said a very interesting thing. And what he said is if you look at composers and how much of their, if you want to say catalog, is actually played, the Beatles are stand out because it's like a huge amount of their work actually is played, like 80% of it. And if you go to like Mozart, it's like 40%. There are pieces he wrote that are not as uh, uh, popular or whatever. So I, I do think there is a difference. Uh, I think there are great painters. Uh, in the music thing, uh, you know, how do you explain that there are musicians who are, uh, you could say, very popular, who can't read music but just started playing piano? How do we know how they knew how to do that? And they have a sound, and uh, they're, they're able to express something. So, and, and, and painting is like that too. Absolutely. And I think technology has people like that. I think that's a populate MIT. Can I interrupt the interrupting? Sure. Uh, yeah, always. What I'd like, we like interrupting I, each other. I'm always curious, and I, I, I teach classes at different universities, and I always say that you can't teach somebody to throw a 90 mile an hour fastball. Some people have it, some people don't. Yeah. And yeah. I, I, I'm always struggling with leadership. Uh, leadership, charisma, those type of things, I, I don't think you can teach them. I think you either have it or you don't. You can improve slightly on whatever amount of that you have, but for you to really just break out of the box and be a leader is very, I think, I think it's inherent and not, it's, a, it's, it's born, not made. Yeah, I, I would agree with you. I would say on the leadership thing, too, there may be circumstances that are so structured like in the military where you you know you're trained to be an officer and it's within it's it's more narrow but and you're told what values you have to express <clears throat> but i would agree with you and leadership's kind of a hard thing to define as to what um, that's a, that's a, a personality thing if you take that multidimensional if you take that same military situation and you have Teddy Roosevelt charging up the hill and people follow. Some people charge up the hill and nobody will follow, even though exactly. they have the rank. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Exactly. So, you, go ahead, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I, I guess my question or my comment is about success and failure. So yes. modern, the modern definition of success is financial success. So if I, if I'm an innovator, 
and I invent a something. A prize wouldn't be bad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, correct. <laughs> and so I invent something. I guess if it stays in the lab at MIT and it's great, but it doesn't make it into the commercial world, is it still a success? And uh, because you can be an innovator and do something at home that satisfies you, but you're not dying to take it to market and prove its financial success. Are you still? Do you do you think that's still a success? And I'll give you an example later. Well, I, I, to answer your question, it's it, it, that's a really good question, and I am going to phrase it this way. Sometimes people will say to me in businesses, "Oh, it's publisher parish," and they say it in sort of a derogatory way, like, "Well, they got to pay, publish a paper." And what they don't realize is a friend of mine at Harvard had said, "One paper could make a career." So as an example of a paper that made a career is the thesis of Claude Shannon that was written in the 1940s that actually that basically establishes the mathematics behind digital technology. So without Claude Shannon, you really wouldn't have digital technology. He went on, I think, to, he was at Bell Labs, and then he went on to, I think, be a professor here. Very famous guy. It's like what's his face so, in uh, Bitcoin, uh, Yakamura or whatever his name was in Bitcoin, right? That one. Oh, paper. the mythical yeah. figure. The mythical figure. Yeah. Yes, yeah. keep going. Yeah. So, you know, success. I would say this: success is having influence uh, in society. So, uh, let me give you an example of financial success that I would say is trivial. Uh, a friend of my wife and and me. Uh, was in the mail order business. And what he said was, that one, and it was like kitchenware, and he said the most successful product he had was a shot glass that was marked like tablespoons, you know, one teaspoon, tablespoon. And he said it cost him like, you know, 10 cents to, to make it, but it sold for $4. It was a great success. Well, that's a financial success, but okay, it's a shot glass that's got a mark on it, you know. Okay, <laughs> yeah. you know, and him say to me that's not such a big deal. Or, or uh, you could have a financial success if you're the guy in an airline company who said, "Hey, we can charge for luggage," you know, and we make money, and but and that's a financial success. He added something to the bottom line, but okay, so he did that. I think that success is definitely he made a lot of enemies it, also. <laughs> oh, he did. True. But see what I'm saying? It can't just be making money. It has to be, I think, having influence over society, bringing something to society that makes people better. Which is wait, the creation of a movement uh, that you were referring to earlier. Yeah. But wait a minute. These are all, I mean, clearly success is in the uh, eye of the beholder. And in addition, there are some well-accepted standards of success. Some are making money. Some are in the art field. Some are maybe not making money, but having an influence um, in the, in that way. May not make money at all. Um, success yeah. may be not clear for years and years and years. So, it, yeah. so uh, my question goes back to Ziad, which was, what was your point? <laughs> my point was, <laughs> your point? if you, if you, because this podcast is about failure, oh, yes. and, and now we're talking about innovation. Yeah, yeah. You can innovate and not be successful. Based on the modern definition of yeah. success, which is financial. So that would be like the, Net, the Netscape browser was an innovation, but it, it's not. It, and it did form a movement, but commercially, it, it, it's ultimately not, not something. Yeah, you can be uses. successful, not At make a lot point. of money, live a happy life, and uh, just be happy. It doesn't have to be this obsession with financial gain. 
Right. Rothko was actually a failure as a wall painter. So Randall, did that go over everybody's head? Yes, it, no, it, it, it did. Mark's thinking about it. No, well, I know, I know well, who Mark Rothko is. Yeah, I like okay, abstract I gotta ask expressionist art. Okay, what oh, can I tell you? from what era? Obviously, <laughs> no, recent. No, 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 no. In the last uh, thirty years. Okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. He painted stripes. Okay, and they were they were highly innovative because, uh, and I'm not sure exactly how to explain it, but. As a wall painter, like I said, he was a failure. That's why when you have to explain, it's, it's not funny. Yeah, we're, <laughs> okay. we're, we're letting you dangle. We'll, uh, we'll edit it out of the podcast. <laughs> exactly. We'll, we'll point out that this so, was done early. So, so Randall, I have a f- another question. So, <laughs> when you see all these companies at MIT, students, faculty creating startups, so <clears throat> what are the things that um, that you like or that? trigger your excitement when you see someone telling you okay I have a new company what are the, we asked the same question to David Friend, Mick asked him the question to, uh, last week oh, like, what are the things thing. you look for in a startup and, and I'm curious to, to know what are the things that, that excite you you know what I would say this and maybe it's not what excites me, it's more to say when you see that somebody really has something, there is like a uh, intuitive grasp that this is a very cool thing and a big deal. And the other thing that it, on the flip side is when you look at somebody who's starting a company and you can say, I can see this is not going to go very wide. This is something that you could start a business, but it isn't necessarily got the, the insight that's going to really alter things. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Okay. And I'll give you two examples. The first example is something that totally excites me when I saw this and I'm not an expert in electrical engineering, but it would just really knock my socks off. There's a, there's a professor here, a young man named Max Shoelaker. He's making what are called 3D chips. A 3D chip has a, a, a capability to do learning, AI, along with sensing. So we don't have to send stuff to the cloud. We can put it on a chip. And what it has are carbon nanotubes, and I think he can sense like thousands of chemical compounds if he wanted to. Mass General is interested in this technology for healthcare because we'd like to be able to um, take like a breathalyzer and evaluate a person's health. The issue is everybody's breath isn't the same, and we'd have to sample, I think, hundreds or thousands of compounds to make a decision as to what your general health would be. So this chip can do that It, it can because everybody's breath is going to be different. So if somebody drinks coffee and somebody else drinks cranberry juice for breakfast, their breath isn't going to be the same. So where's the learning a, piece? Is, where's the learning piece of that? You, you you're talking about sensing. To, it, the learning piece is learning what corresponds to your health. In other words, oh. your breath. The, the, the machine has to learn what what very what breath level for you. You might say of compounds represents your health because it's not the same for everyone. Got it. Got it. Got it. So, got it okay. Got it. Now, that technology is remarkable in many ways. One is that there is also, you know, in cybersecurity, there's a movement. Some people say you can fix software, but other people say don't transmit the data. 
do processing locally. And that's what this thing does. It, does, it means that you don't have to go to a cloud and give, give away a lot of personal information. You could do it locally. So it has very big impact for cybersecurity as well. So the flip, side there, the flip side there, as I understand it, is if you do all your processing locally, then you have to feed knowledge in. If you do processing remotely in a central location, for example, you can bring in sort of the big data analysis and decide that this group of people have picked up the flu. The flip side is if you're going to do it locally, don't you then have to feed more information to those 3D chips so that they can recognize... You just recognize- would feed the outcomes. But, oh, yeah, and you know what? You're, what you're describing is exactly what's going to go on on campus. Of, of saying, if we want health care, what are the different proposals for getting it? If we want to use, like, data to manage health, these are different inventions. And they have their different, you know, Shoemaker's argument is going to be different than somebody else's argument. But it's realized in the chip that he's been made, that he has made. And it could but be a mix of the two. It's exactly yeah. right. But there's there's so many uses that could be applied to that. Exactly. And so Lita, exactly. Lita Nelson, who runs the technology transfer, she's got to be rubbing her hands with glee because you could license this to any number of different companies. Exactly. So this is, you know, I, it's not a business yet, as I understand it's a technology. it. But that, to me, is spectacular. That's a, a, you know, groundbreaking thing. And if you look at enough fields and you see enough of what people are doing, you can develop a sort of an intuition that that's, uh, uh, says this, this has real promise. Now, I could give you a, an example of something I don't think has a lot of promise. Okay, and, I, and the na- it will go nameless, but there's a startup that's in California that it talks about extreme learning. So what that means is that in order for a robot to grab something off or open a door, what you'd do is you'd have a robot arm go many, many times and learn to open the door, learn to uh, turn the doorknob. Okay, that's that's what's a form called extreme learning. Now, there's a professor here at MIT, Sang Bae Kim, who says that we don't know how you reach out and grab keys off of a desk. We don't know how it is. We don't know where the computation's going on. But he said, people can just do this. And he also offers the examples of, uh, uh, like baby goats. When they're born, they just stand up and they start running. And they start running all over the place and they're not learning to run. Somehow they just know how to do it. And that's what's behind his robotic cheetah. The cheetah isn't learning to run. It has it in built in a type of, uh, uh, design architecture. Uh, let's say it that way, a control architecture that he's he's well known for. Okay, when I look at the cheetah, I'd say, wow, that is very interesting, that form of control and that understanding of biomimetics. When I look at the other thing, I'd say that looks really clumsy to me. When I look at the startup and having to have a robot bang into a door, I don't know how many times to develop enough data to finally figure out how to open it up. I'm gonna, that, to me, has less promise. I'm going to change back to Mick's original question which I don't yeah. know if I got the answer for. How did you end up with your background in, it looked like an engineering undergrad, business school, and something else. How did you end up at the, was it, it's called the Industrial Liaison Office now? Or the ILP? Yeah. How did you end uh, up? Well, it's, it's called the Office of Corporate Relations. Right, so I don't, and Mick asked that question already, but I'm not sure I understood the 
answer. Why, why you, why are you doing this? Because it seems like you are thinking in a number of different directions, which may be fully consistent with that position or not. You know what? Here's what happened. I was working for Pfizer, and the, the division I worked for got sold. And so I left that division. This is a long, long time ago. And I said to myself, I'd really like to be in a position where I have, like, clients. I thought that would be fun. We don't have clients. We have members. You know, it's not like a, a client where we represent their interests that way. We, we are more like a coach, you could say, or a process consultant. And what I found when I came to this job is I kept learning something every year and meeting really interesting people. And that just kept kept fueling my interests. Now, insofar as background is concerned, uh, my background is a little mixed up in this sense. I never studied anything I really liked. So when I uh, went to engineering school, I did because in my family, that's what you were supposed to do. You, you had to, you couldn't study something else, so I did that. When I came to MIT, I did a thesis in in a high temperature chemistry problem. I was no good at chemistry before, and uh, and it had turbulent fluid flow, and I wasn't any good at fluid mechanics. So I did. I proved that you can succeed at something that you really don't have an inclination for. What I found at MIT that was so intriguing is how humanistic it is. And I'm more like a guy, somebody finally said to me, you should be in humanities. I see a lot of human connection in this. And that's really what is inspiring and different, is it's not a bunch of people who are just absorbed in a technology. It's it's a bunch of people who are very humanistic in wanting, they're like Renaissance people. It's like knowing a Leonardo. You know, okay. Leonardo is, uh, it dissected, you know, uh, plants and animals and things. But he, he, he was a humanist. And I think this is a very humanistic uh, institution. Okay. Well, and, what the deal is. Got it. Got it. Randall, without getting too personal, uh, it, the bottom line is you've got to bring in customers who pay the, the university money. And so mm-hmm. are you graded at the end of the year by how many new innovation customers you brought in or people curious about what you're doing? Is that the way you're uh, you graded? Uh, you know what? I would say this. The answer to your question is something I learned from a vice president at Pfizer whose name was Peter Garcio. And he was a, he was an MIT graduate, and Peter was a remarkable leader. And he pulled me aside once, and he said, the most important thing in an employee is loyalty. He said, you can forget everything. It's all about loyalty. And so when you say, are we graded and stuff, I think what MIT matters to MIT as a community is that loyalty. So we're in our role. It's not like we're, we want this place to be successful. And we have the loyalty and conviction to do that. And I think that's really how people end up being evaluated is on their loyalty. Because if they're loyal, they will produce results. And I think that's what what people are looking for. What a terrific thought. And so before we close, it sounds like we're getting ready to close time-wise. Um, I have a new tradition that may never happen again, so I don't know if this is even a tradition so or a, a one-time test. occurrence. Yeah, we're gonna, I'm going to ask Randall about a question that is in the news but not political. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. But, but it's, it's, it's is there, very important. Is question. there news like that? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is really. We important. have not been briefed on this before, you, you so this is not, all. But live. I hope you've already. Yep. This is all. I don't live. think I've approved this. No, <laughs> <laughs> no. This is important. It was in the New York Times on Saturday, and it has been repeated by virtually every paper, but with no new information. The um, this is the Times report that the uh, Pentagon had a program started in 2007 and just discontinued funding in 2012, though still going, on UFOs and uh, interviews of uh, airmen, uh, whether they're from the Navy or the Air Force, who have followed UFOs in some notion that there are certainly unidentified flying objects out there with no conclusion where they're from. What are your thoughts on all that? What's well, MIT's you position? <laughs> yeah. 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 I, I, okay, I don't know that MIT has a position. <laughs> oh, come there on. was an MIT yeah. faculty member who was asked about this, and she yes. is like an astrophysicist. Yes. And her point was, uh, I think a really good one, which was, it, they may not be uh, uh, UFOs, if you want to say, like, you know, intelligent life. It, it may be f- phenomena we don't understand. Or maybe and both. So, it may or, be, well, it may be, be and, but, yes. Yes, but you're but, right. But, she did but, say but that. what I'm saying is, you know, it's, it's easy to quickly look at a fuzzy photo of something moving and say, oh, it must be a, you know, and not realize it's, Maybe some other thing, other phenomena. It may be some reflective thing. It may be something. So that's how I would take that. Is that it's uh, we don't know how good any of that information is. Meaning, you know, some picture or movie. We don't really know what we're looking at. And so I wouldn't be jumping to conclusions about what it means. Okay, and it so may you're be in the skeptic physical camp. Phenomenon we don't get. So, as we wrap up, first of all, I think this has been a, an excellent conversation, and on behalf of the team, you know, we really appreciate your your time and your insight. Um, you know, I like the notion again that the that innovation is always an argument, um, mm-hmm. and and you talked about things that excited you. So, my question is, can you smell failure? You talked about a, a little bit with the extreme learning thing. You talked about smelling success around the three D chips, but can you smell failure? When you see it, well, you can in this sense, is because it's like a taste thing. It's like it's like uh, it's like a fashion thing. If you see someone dressed well, you just know it. But when someone it isn't put together right, you can tell as well. It's that's true in architecture. It's true in a lot of things that something isn't quite right. Uh, when you listen to, I, I would give you an ex- ex- example. Sometimes people will make analogies. Those are arguments by analogy between biological systems and physical systems. And when you really look at it, you say, well, that doesn't make any sense. That's not going to work. There's a short paper that I wrote that's called The Interview Guide. It was published by IRI. And it what it says is it gives the example of Segway. It says if you were to take the Time magazine uh, interview of Dean Kamen and what he said about Segway and take it apart as, as the arguments he was making, he really didn't have compelling arguments for why everybody was going to be on a Segway. It's a very hard thing to build, and he, it's, it's very brilliant what he did, it just, but it doesn't make an argument as to why we should all be riding around on these things. So that's how you would, you pull it apart. 
huh. is by listening carefully and saying, does this really make sense and is it going to affect lives the way the inventor thinks it will? Uh, and some people, again, make very bad analogies. And they, they uh, you know, there's lots of examples. So that's how you can sort of sense, is it a really good argument or not? That's like Shoemaker's stuff. That is really remarkable to listen to him talking about that. He, it's it's uh, really compelling, and you can tell he really is has, has has got a good argument for what he's doing. And and sometimes they are inventors are stuck in their own logic and they can't see anything outside their invention. And uh, but but anyway, this is a fascinating fascinating discussion. I really, really enjoyed it. I, I wish we could spend four hours, even days, discussing this. 